Well, we're in a series called Press On. It's a series about spiritual growth, growing in our love for God and for others. Spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is just that. Increasing our level of love for God, increasing our level of love for others. The two greatest commandments, loving God and loving people. And I want to answer the question today, can a Christian ever stop growing spiritually? Can a Christian ever stop growing spiritually? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the apostle Paul wrote, To his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. End your hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying. Reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all this. Do you ever stop growing? Do you ever stop growing? Former UCLA basketball coach John Wooden once said, When you are through learning, you're through. Well, that pretty much tells us where he is on that, right? And I believe him. And last Sunday, someone asked me this very question. You know, can you ever get, Randy, do you ever get to a point in your Christian life where you stop growing? And I think, that's a, I think that's a fair question, a fair, a good question to ask. It's not just a question that we ought to just take for granted or assume that we know that the answer is. And the reason why I think it's a good question, because when you think about the other areas of our lives where we do stop growing, I'm thinking of, you know, physically, I'm about the same height now at, uh, you know, 47, that as I was, uh, you know, when I was 17 or 18, okay? And so I have kind of stopped growing, and I, I guess I understand what you, you know, the only things that continue to grow, you know, physically are your, you know, your, your fingernails and your ears and your nose, which I think is quite unfortunate, and um, I'll be asking the Lord about that later on, but physically, Physically, we do stop. Occupationally, occupationally, your job skills, you kind of, you know, you will probably peak and then they, you know, level off and then decline, right? Mentally, mentally, you're processing, you know, peaks and then it kind of experiences, and then, uh, you know, decline. Emotionally, your nerves can only handle so much with age. So, so I think it's natural to wonder about the question, can a person ever stop growing spiritually because because emotionally and physically and mentally and you know occupationally you know there there is a a peak and then there's a decline you know 
I think it would be natural for us to maybe one day think, okay, well, maybe this is, maybe I've just, this is all the love of God that I can grow to and all the love of people that I can grow to and this is kind of as good as it gets and is that true? And, and well, no, I don't think so because I don't see that in Scripture. Nothing in the Bible tells us that, that you just reach a spiritual level of growth and you just stop you, and, then, and then that's it. And, and the reason for that is is that Growth, spiritual growth, loving God, loving people is something that God both commands and it's something that God supplies. God commands growth and God supplies growth. And I'm thinking of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And then verse 6, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, And who made it grow? God makes it grow. God causes growth. God causes growth. God supplies growth. And at the same time, God commands us to grow. He insists on growth, 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow! And that's in the present tense. Never stop growing. Keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's this mystery here. And if you're going to embrace Christianity, get used to mystery. Just get used to mystery. Get used to worshiping a God whose mind is far deeper and greater and higher and broader than I can ever begin to grasp. And get used to a God who says, I want you, Randy, to grow and I will cause growth. And it's kind of like that prayer that a pastor 1,600 years ago prayed. Augustine, he said, oh, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. Give, give what you command, command what you will. God, you command me to grow, and Lord, please cause the growth that happens in my life. And so what we've been learning in this series on spiritual growth is that there are seasons of growth, and that about half of us in our church family are, are, are self-described as being young in our faith. We, we're either exploring Christ, or we are growing in Christ, and then about the other half of us are, are, would self-identify as close to Christ or Christ-centered. And last week we talked about how those earlier in that season of Christianity, how God grows us and he does that as we immerse ourselves with Jesus' word and with prayer and with Jesus' people. Jesus' word, Jesus' prayer, Jesus' people. And as I immerse myself in that, I realize that, that time with Jesus and time with his word and time with his people will sharpen me as a believer in the earlier seasons. of Those are catalytic activities, not just for earlier, but all throughout the spectrum of our growth. But specifically, what about in the later seasons? How does someone who is close to Christ or Christ-centered, how do they continue to grow? How does one's level of love for God and others continue and thrive? And I want to answer that question today. And I want to answer it with the word. This is the word. This is the word that I want you to talk about in the car on the way to lunch. What did he talk about? He talked about this word. And the word, the word that is the focus word, the key word for that which will allow us to continue to grow as in, this, in these later seasons of Christianity. It's the word, here it is, vocation. Vocation. Vocation, that's the word. That's the word I want you to talk about, vocation. 
It's related to the word voice or vocal. It has to do with calling. I'm not talking about your 40-hour-a-week job. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about the vocation, the career of being a man of God or a woman of God. I'm talking about someone who, in their core identity, who they are, their significance, their worth, their reason for occupying the planet has nothing to do with stuff or status or things or education or position, but rather it is solely focused in their relationship with Jesus. And when Christ becomes your calling, when Christ becomes your vocation, Oh my, you're going to begin to see this world in such a different way, a new way. When following Jesus is your vocation, then Jesus is no longer a Sunday morning subject in a room like this. When Christ is your vocation, he's a 24-7 person existing and living in your life. When Jesus is your vocation, then this church is no longer just a facility on Windsor Road, but rather a community of believers. When Jesus is your vocation, then what we see see here on Sunday is not just a bunch of religious folk, but a family of wounded healers. When Jesus is your vocation, then this place is no longer a cruise ship to entertain, but rather a warship of the king to advance his sovereign purposes. Vocation, that's the word. That's the word. Christianity is a what? Vocation. On three. One, two, three. Vocation. Christianity is a vocation. And this is especially important when juxtaposed to another word. The bad word. Vocation is the good word. This is the bad word. (laughs) Hobby. (laughs) Uh, I have hobbies. Yeah, but my hobby is about my leisure. But my vocation is my life. My hobby is my playtime. But my vocation is my life's pursuit. My hobby is my diversion. But my vocation is my dedicated vision. And what we need to understand about this thing called vision is that you know, us being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ... What we need to get is that we have not arrived at our vision by having 900 people show up, just 900 attenders. No, no, no. Our, our vocation, our church's vocation is not about having 900 or thousands of attenders, but rather thousands of change agents, a gathering of missionaries and change agents and, and contagious influencers who gather for worship and training and then go right back out to the fields and the offices and the classrooms and the neighborhoods and the families where God has put them to fulfill the vocation to which he has called them to be a difference maker, to be salt and light. And the day you see yourself as a pastor or shepherd or missionary will be the day you experience radical transformation. You will come to this campus and facility no longer thinking, what can they do? do for me instead you will think how can I serve and with whom can I share the serving experiences that I have this week the privilege of being used by God to make a difference in someone else's life where he put me or with whom can I connect because I had a tough week serving see or which hurting person can I offer prayer for when we change our minds about, and, and, and the difference, that's the difference between vocation and hobby. And when we change our minds about who God is calling me to be and what this gathering is about, stratospheric heights, 
of spiritual growth await us. The word is vocation, church. Christianity is a vocation, not a hobby. Christianity is a vocation, not a hobby. Remember your vocation. And I think that's what's behind Paul's words that we read here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul, Paul offers Timothy some vocational images, some vocational word pictures. Timothy, you're, you're not a new believer now. You've been around for a while. You're at this stage in your spiritual life. You're leading. You're taking responsibility for others. And the way you're going to keep growing, the way you're going to increase in your level of love for God and others is to remember your vocation. Remember your calling. And it's like Paul's going, how many different ways can I say the same thing? How many different ways can I tell you, Timothy, to remember your vocation? And so, Paul, I want to talk here in these verses about four vocational images. Four vocational images. Farmer, teacher, soldier, athlete. Farmer, teacher, soldier, athlete. Timothy, I want you to feast like a farmer. I want you to share truth like a teacher. I want you to stay focused like a soldier. And I want you to compete and train like an athlete. Farmer, teacher, soldier, athlete. Farmer, verse 6. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, what does that mean? The hardworking farmer should be the first, the first to receive the share of the crops. What does that mean? Well, this was in the days before combines and tractors and till and no-till farming. I mean, I mean, comparatively, comparatively, 2,000 years ago, you're talking about some back-breaking work in terms of the farmer in the first century and the notion that that farmer would sit beneath a tree and have the fruit just fall on his lap. No, no, no. That's a foolish fantasy. And because it is hard work, because it is hard work, Paul says to Timothy, son, you need food too. Son, eat, Tim, eat, feast. Farmers produce food to feed others, but they need food as well. And if they refuse the food that they grow, then how will they do their job? You see that? That's what that verse means. The Christian worker toils to produce food for others through study and the teaching of God's word. But to remain spiritually effective, they must first nourish their own spiritual life with the food they produce. And that's why Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Eat, son. Eat, nourish yourself. Eat what? Eat the gospel. Feast on the gospel. That's the thing that doesn't change no matter what season of life you are in, in Christ. The, why? Because the gospel is the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. There's that word calling, vocation. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The gospel has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace in the flesh who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. The gospel is salvation through faith in Jesus. The gospel is that the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that while we were yet sinners, separated from God, enemies from God, captives and hostages in the dominion of darkness, grace showed up. 
looking like a human. He was human. While we were sinners, he died for us. And if for some reason your love for God and others just hasn't quite been on the rise, could it be that maybe, perhaps, you think that the gospel is just for unbelievers? Could that be it? It's not just for unbelievers. It's for believers. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. Never, never. The gospel is not just the first few steps of the staircase to maturity. The gospel is more like a hub from which the spokes of my life wheel revolves The gospel is not just the minimum requirement to get into heaven. The gospel is how God grows me all the way. You see, the gospel shows me that my problem is that I have not been obeying God, my failure to obey him. But the gospel also teaches me that when I do obey him, I do it for the wrong reasons. The gospel teaches me that I not only need to repent of my disobedience, I need to repent of my righteousness because because the reason why I'm trying to be righteous is to make me look good. Don't you think this happens so often after we come to Christ, we say, so often after we come to Christ, we say, okay, God, thank you. I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. As if God paid the initiation fee and then, you know, we have to come up with the monthly dues. Oh, God, I'll just take it from here. I had someone tell me in the foyer right after first service. They came up to me and said, oh, I, am, I can't believe you said that, Randy, because this, I, I'll take it from here. I know a professional golfer who was playing in a tournament, and I'm sitting here amazed at this story that's unfolding. I, this person who was uh, right behind a tree, and it was an impossible shot. The person prayed. They actually prayed. They were playing in a tournament, and they actually prayed. They said, God, if you will please get me out of this problem. I will give you all the credit. The person swings the golf club. The ball gets on the green. And then the person says, I'll take it from here, God. They four putt. (laughs) (laughs) The stories I get out in the foyer. (laughs) It's true. That's, That's what they told me. I've done that, only it hasn't been golf. It's been other things, right? I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here is legalism, by the way. I'll take it from here. You see, legalism is, legal. whenever you say, God, I'll take it from here, that's legal. Legalism is trying to achieve forgiveness from God by white-knuckling it. A legalist is anybody who acts like they can earn God's forgiveness through personal performance. Legalism. Legalism says to God, you know, your plan isn't enough. The cross isn't enough. So I I just need to add something to that. And therefore, legalism is self-atonement for the self-glorification and ultimately for self-worship. See, a legalist will say, well, now, how long was my quiet time? How long was that? And how many days in a row was that? A legalist will say that, but someone who's gospel-driven will ask, has my time with God produced love for him and love for others? See, that's the fruit we're looking for. We're, We're looking for the fruit of love, not the fruit of a completed time card. And one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul could say, I have fought the fight, I've kept the faith, I've won the race, is because he never forgot how much he needed grace. He never, he never forgot how much he needed grace. Have you? Have we? 
you know, one of the ways we can tell how, how, if we are growing in God's grace, you know how to tell? Just ask yourself the question, how much grace have I been giving? The farmer should be the first to receive his share of the crops, but not the only one. And if you've been a Christian for years, check yourself, ask yourself, how much, how much grace do I give others? When wronged, do I give others the benefit of a doubt? Hmm? Here's another measure. If you're a Christian for years, ask yourself, how, how grateful am I? Uh, don't answer that yourself. Ask your spouse or your best friend to answer that. They'll tell you. What's, what's the level of gratitude in my life? How grateful would others say I am? See, how grateful would others say I am? Do you, do you think God owes you? Is that it? You think this church owes you? I've been coming here for 19, 20 years. Do you think this church owes you what? What's your level of gratitude? And, how much, and then here's another indicator. How much grumbling do I do? How much grumbling? If your grumbling level is high and your gratitude level is low, I can guarantee you right now, you're not growing. You're not. You're just, you're not even plateaued. Grumblers never grow. So Paul says to Timothy, eat, son, feast on the grace. Feast on the grace. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor. He says, for when you are deeply aware of your sin and what an affront it is to God's holiness and how impossible it is for him to respond to this sin with anything other than furious wrath, you can only be overwhelmed with how amazing God's grace is. And believe me, God's furious wrath was fully discharged, but not on you, on his son. That's not fair. You're right, it's not. You know what it is? It's grace. Oh, Timothy, feast on the grace. The unchanging gospel. Christianity is a vocation, it's not a hobby. I want you to feast like a farmer. And then Paul says, Timothy, if you want to grow as a Christ-centered Christian, you need not merely feast on the gospel truth. You need to teach it. You need to share it. Verse 2, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. You see, earlier in your season with Christ, you grew by getting truth. But later in this later season, you grow by giving truth, sharing truth, telling truth. Did you know that one of the most important and catalytic uh, activities for spiritual growth for those who have already experienced growth is simply this, spiritual conversations. Spiritual conversations. I mean, we have many educators in our church, and you know, the, you know the drill. The teacher always learns most. And so if you've experienced a, a plateau, if you feel like you've stalled or not grown in your walk with Christ, ask yourself the question, when was the last time I had a spiritual conversation with anybody about Jesus? When was the last time? When was the last time I've been able to talk with someone about my faith? When was the last time I listened to someone about their faith? It's true, whenever you talk about Jesus to someone, to an unbeliever, to someone who's not a Christian, the growth potential is doubled because you see, not only does the listener have the opportunity to meet God and grow, the one who shares does as well. 
And I mean a one-on-one conversation. I mean a sit down across the table with coffee. And by God's grace, I've been able to have several conversations. I mean, it just seems like even this year, I've had more than in the past. And to have lengthy conversations with those who are seeking. And every one of those conversations has left me energized, not knowing what's going to happen afterwards, not knowing And yet at the end, I'm just thinking, Lord, you know, thank you for the opportunity. I sense your love and pleasure and presence as you use me in this conversation to someone about how great they are. And having said that, church family, I don't think that I've had enough. I don't. I think I could be doing better at initiating spiritual conversations. I mean spiritual conversations with my neighbors, spiritual conversations with those who live on Daniel Street. I think I need to get through the fear factor. Yeah, there, I said it. I need to get through the what are they going to think about me factor. I just need to say something. Engage. And I think that that quite candidly, because it's been a weakness in my life, it has shown up as a weakness in our church. How do I know that? Our survey told us. Check this slide out. What was the most important reason why people chose Windsor Road Christian Church? Pay attention to line two. A friend or relative invited me to the church. Just 13% of you know, the, the 200 who took this survey. And that arrow is pointing down because that's a 20% less than the, just the entire sample of 200 churches from all backgrounds. And that maybe could explain why uh, in this next slide. You know, the latter three slides are describing Christians. The first slide, 7, 7%. And that's low. What I'm saying is evangelism has been weak in our church. And, and I need to own my responsibility for that. And that's one of the reasons why we are dedicating our fall series on training, on how we can engage others naturally, naturally, oh so very naturally in spiritual conversations. We're going to be having a series where, you know, we're we're not going to be having a series where we train you how to put flyers underneath people's windshields at the mall. That's not what this is about, okay? It's a series about how to engage, how how to engage in spiritual conversations with the people in my life, my family, my neighbors. And we don't have to wait till fall to find that out. I'll say this much. Uh, according to uh, the, the study book that we have with this series, it's called Reveal. This is, I mean, this is how it is. The number one evangelistic activity for most segments, those four, number one evangelistic activity is to talk about prayer or offer to pray for a non-Christian. So what does that look like? It, it looks like, you are having a conversation with your neighbor or your coworker or your colleague or someone in your family. You're, you're having a conversation with them, and they're beginning to share with you about the struggles in their life. And at that point, that's an opportunity. The Holy Spirit is like nudging you. Okay, all right, what do I say? How do I respond? How about, you know, Steve, can I, you know, can I just keep you in my prayers over this? Okay, that, that's what that looks like. Or, 
you know, Steve, can, can I pray with you about this now? Okay, now, see? That's what we're talking about. That, that, that speaks volumes, the genuine, authentic concern for others. Outreach. Outreach. But, but we're going to have to get through that fear factor. We're going to have to get through that what do they think about me factor. We're going to have to. And, and you know what? For many of us, we would just rather put more money in the offering plate and ask God to call it even. Right? <laughs> Lord, I'll, okay, I'll tithe. But don't ask me to share a good word with you about it, you know. No, we need to do both. We need, we need to share with God, and then we need to share words from God to our, our loved ones. And so here's the challenge as we receive the offering. Here's the challenge. It comes in the form of a prayer. Here it is. Father in heaven, Lord, here is a money gift to you for your work that I wish to share. Now please help me share a word gift this week about you too. Amen. Feast like a farmer, Timothy. Pull up to the table of grace and eat. And then you take and then you take some away from the table so that you can share. You teach like a teacher. Share like a teacher. Feast like a farmer. Share like a teacher. Because Christianity is a vocation, it's not a hobby. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Son, I want you to endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Farmer, teacher, soldier, highly focused soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Here's some good news for you. Did you know that in the Roman Empire from the early days on, a soldier was expected to remain unmarried during his military career? Married men at the time of enlistment were expected to end their marriage. And this went all the way up to the rank of centurion, which would today be about a lieutenant colonel. Furthermore, no soldier was permitted to moonlight by conducting his own business on the side. (laughs) None of this National Guard stuff one weekend a month. You're in or out. And of course, Paul's point to his son in the faith is that Christians are soldiers of Christ and they must stay focused. Single-minded devotion to Jesus. Single-minded devotion to Jesus. Whether you're married as a Christian, whether you're unmarried, Jesus deserves single-minded devotion. Stay focused on him. Which, of course, presents a problem that you're probably already thinking of right now. It's probably already crossed your mind. We live in a culture committed to undermining the very vocation that God has for us. Our culture is dead set on undermining that. And I'll tell you how it shows up. I'll tell you how it shows up in, in preacher land. Todd Bolsinger is a pastor at a church, and he relates a story where the chairman of his eldership 
They were talking and they were talking about vision and the future of the church. And then the elder just kind of, you talk about a pop in the balloon. Chairman of the elder finally said, Todd, Todd, listen, let me tell you how it is. You do a great job articulating a compelling vision for the church. You do. That's wonderful, Todd. But you've got to remember, Todd, that vision, vision is not all that powerful. <laughs> How's that? And then he says this. Culture trumps vision every time. Culture trumps vision every time. And the elder went on to explain how in most organizations, and you think about it in your world, you think about it in your company. You think about it. In most organizations, in most people's lives, that which trumps a divinely inspired vision, that which trumps that really nicely engraved vision statement plaque just inside the entrance, that which trumps that, the very thing that's stronger are those ingrained, unconscious, unexamined habits that make an organization what it is And that's called culture. Culture. And culture is the result of the intentional and mostly unintentional civilian affairs of a people. And therefore, therefore the vision of having less than 18% body fat and qualifying for the Boston Marathon gets trumped every time I unconsciously eat three bowls of chips and salsa while sitting at a table talking with a friend about my vision of having less than 18% body fat and qualifying for the Boston Marathon. (laughs) The vision of getting up early in the morning for prayer gets trumped not because I'm too lazy to get up early, but because I chose to go to bed too late the night before. The vision of raising children who will live for Christ at all cost gets trumped just as soon as Junior makes the elite soccer team that plays on Sundays. The vision of tithing, giving 10% to God in gratitude, gets trumped. Not because I'm a greedy stockpiler, but because I'm an impulsive shopper with a loaded credit card. The vision of a church that answers the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it it is in heaven, gets trumped when that church makes decisions primarily in the interests of the longtime members. And Bolsinger says this. He says, here's the deal. No one wakes up in the morning intent to undermine their vision. No one, no one. People don't deliberately let themselves get trumped by the status quo. But it happens all the time. And it happens unconsciously through unreflective civilian affairs. We just, we just kind of amble on through life not thinking about the choices that we're making that affect the vision or the failure to attain that. We don't. So I'm asking, you know, what are you, what you're doing right now is producing the results that you have right now, okay? So are we thinking about that, or are we distracted? Are we? uh, Here's a fascinating book. I haven't read the book. I've read portions of it. There's a review on it that's fascinating. It's a book called Distracted. 
the erosion of attention, and the coming dark age. Now, there's an encouraging book for you. But, I mean, listen to this and see if this resonates. The book says, instant communications technology and the natural impatience make an unholy alliance designed to rob the workday of any sustained interval of unbroken attention to a particular task. From email to instant messaging to Twitter, an update service devoted to what are you doing at this moment in anity, the reviewer's words, not mine, the interval between interruptions appears to be approaching zero. And then it says this, in the workplace, a distracted knowledge worker is a fallow asset. Uh, Now, you say, what is a knowledge worker? Well, okay, out in the foyer, shake my hand, and if your hand is as soft as mine, you're a knowledge worker, okay? (laughs) Distracted knowledge workers are fallow assets. Workers typically change tasks. Get this. Workers typically, knowledge workers typically change tasks every three minutes and take about 25 minutes to return to an interrupted task, usually plugging in two other work projects in the interim. By one estimate, interruptions take up to 2.1 hours of an average worker's day and cost the U.S. economy $588 billion a year. Many distractions turn out to be self-initiated. It appears that we just can't wait to read the next email or blog entry or check to see what might be happening in an online discussion. Wow. Unreflective civilian affairs, unreflective civilian actions, and culture trumps vision every time. That's why Paul says to Timothy, reflect, man. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Maybe we ought to spend some time reflecting. God, what kind of a life do you want me? What what does the life you want? look like in my life? What does the schedule you want me to keep look like? What would my calendar look like? What would my relationship look like? What would my income producing activities look like? My expenses? What serving opportunities? You know, more than any other people on the planet, we really, we have the margin to ask these questions. And then, and only then, once we get that locked in, no matter what the culture says, then we can ask the question, okay, what technology tools, if any, could best help? But we're not just going along, adopting, well, just because that's what everybody's doing. Paul's saying, no, you cannot be involved in civilian affairs. You've got to be focused. You've got to be a soldier. You've got to be a farmer. You've got to be a teacher. You've got to be a soldier. And you may be thinking, how can I do that by myself? And the answer is, you can't. You need relationships. You need more than just, how are you doing? I'm just fine relationships. You need others. And so Paul offers this fourth vocational image when he says in verse 5, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. And that word rules in verse 5 is more than just rules from the rule book. Paul's talking about the training manual, the training regiment, the training routine, the 10 months of full-time preparation that went into first century Olympic Games. That's what we're talking about. And you can't do that by yourself. You've got to have others. You need, you need to be coached if you're going to have the discipline to compete. Henry Cloud has written an excellent book called How People Grow. 
It's a great book on spiritual growth, how people grow. He says discipline is training for a person to learn self-control in some area of life. And then he says this, to be self-disciplined, we need other discipline from the outside. We need God. We need people. And then he says this, he says, if love is the heart, discipline is the skeleton, giving a person form and protection. But he says, we're going to have to take responsibility. We have to take, he says, we are an active part of the discipline we allow to happen to us. It's not passive. It's active, you see. And to what end? Paul says, so that we can receive the victor's crown. See, so that when the games come, so that when the time comes, so that when heaven comes, then we're ready Church family, we have got to get beyond this. Well, I just, I, you know, will I get into heaven? We got to get beyond that question. We, we got to get beyond the statement, well, I'd just be grateful just to get in the gate. We got to get beyond that if we're going to grow. And instead, we've got to move toward the, the growing believer's question, which is this. How can I be ready for the eternal work God wants me to do when he gives me my new body? Now that's the question every growing Christian needs to ask. And that's the question Paul was asking and answering in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see, each one of these images, farmer, teacher, soldier, athlete, it's a both now and then image. It is. Each looks to heaven. Each depends on the hope and confident expectation of life forever with Christ. Because after the labor of farming comes the harvest, right? After, after the course of study comes commencement and graduation, after the battle comes the victory, and after the athletic games comes the prize. See? Oh, God's training us now. This is just practice. We're just training now. The big game's coming in the next life, you see. When in new bodies, sinless, perfect bodies, drenched with the grace of Christ, we are his people. You got something to live for, you see. That's why you can never stop growing. And that's why Christianity is a vocation of spiritual growth. And I'll tell you who else got that. A guy by the name of Paul Brand, Dr. Paul Brand. Outstanding medical doctor. He co-authored with Philip Yancey a wonderful book called, called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Paul Brand died when he was 88 years of age. He spoke at a ceremony and he talked about spiritual growth talked about it he said he said I remember I remember when I was at my physical peak he said I was 27 years old I just finished medical school a group of friends and I were mountain climbing and we could climb for hours and for some people when they cross that peak for them life is over the physical peak then then he said and then I remember well my mental peak I, I was 57 years of age which encouraged me when I read that He said, I was performing groundbreaking hand surgery. All of my medical training was coming together in one place. And I began to just, right there, 
Oh, right there at my mental peak. He said, for some people, when they cross that peak, for them, life is over. Then Dr. Brand said this. He says, I'm now over 80 years of age. He says, I realize that I'm approaching another peak. I'm approaching my spiritual peak. All I have sought to become as a person has the opportunity to come together in wisdom and maturity and kindness and love and joy and peace. And then Paul Brand says this. He says, and when I cross that peak, when I cross that peak, for me, life will not be over. It will have just begun. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, the time has come for my departure. I've fought the fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing.